Esther 4. It's uh, right before Job in your Bible. And uh, it's not a super long book, but it is an awesome book. So, uh, yeah, go ahead and do that. Thank you, Kyle. I'm going to find my coffee, and, uh, and we'll get in. We'll get in. Today's going to be really cool. I'm going to jump around. I'm going to hit some stuff in Isaiah a little bit here and there, and, uh, but we'll land on Esther. So uh, remain there. Let me just read some stuff, and then we'll, we'll, um, we'll jump into Esther. All right. Let me just say this before I start. I feel like, and I know I've said this before, but, but this is different. Um, I feel like what we're going to talk about today is possibly, possibly the most important thing that we have taught on since 2020 started. And um, the Lord, and I'm going to explain a little bit about this um, later, but the Lord has really um, started giving me a different vision. Okay, so we talk about 2020 vision a lot because it's 2020, um, but the only way I know how to describe what I've seen lately is not my current vision being better. It's him exchanging my old vision for a new vision entirely. So I'm going to explain what this means in a second. I believe we are inheriting a view of the creation, so all the cosmos, that differs greatly from the current narrative. Many see what has happened over the past three months as signs of the end, I see what has happened over the past three months as signs of the beginning. So hang with me. This is a little deeper than stuff I've been talking about many times over the past three months. So either evil is currently winning or evil is currently being dealt with. Either evil is winning or evil is being dealt with. Very drastic scenarios, right? And, and unfortunately, the one right now that is the primary message in just all of Christianity in general is evil is kicking our teeth in right now. I mean, or it's being dealt with. In a fight or a war, the only way to defeat an enemy is to meet them face-to-face. Do you agree? I can't, I can't defeat an enemy unless I meet face-to-face with this enemy, right? Remember, Yahweh wants you face-to-face to transform you into the image bearer you were designed to be. But the first step of that is, in fact, face-to-face. So I was telling Ellington this week, the world looks a lot more like Jesus than the church currently does. I told Ellington this this week, and I don't think he's in here. I think he went to get coffee. That's okay. Um, everybody, when he walks back in, just look right at No, I'm just kidding. Don't. Um, <laughs> uh, but we were talking this week, and I made a comment. I made a comment that in the past just couple of weeks in general, but really over the past little bit, the world actually looks a lot more like Jesus than the church itself does. Then... Holy Spirit gently whispered, that is the goal, right? The earth transformed into the image of or look like Jesus. This is literally a conversation. I said, we were just talking and I was like, man, it seems like 
right now the world looks a lot more like Jesus than the church. And I heard the Holy Spirit say, that is the goal, right? Hang with me. Hang with me, okay? I'm going to explain this. It hit me, though I've mentioned this, not fully grasping it, that what we're seeing is the groaning of a creation on tiptoe for the sons and daughters of God. What you're seeing right now is not evil winning. It's creation on tiptoe yearning. Okay? I'm going to explain this. So there's another story that no one is seeing, but I feel we're inheriting. What's happening is not the earth getting more evil. It's actually the beginning of creation being renewed. These aren't the last days in number. These are the first days in substance. Let me, let me just fix this real quick. I've, I've taught on this before, but if you're new. When you read in the New Testament about the last days... Okay, no matter what you've been told, that is not the last hundred days or the last 50 days before Jesus comes back and snatches everybody away. Okay, that's what we, we say. These are the last days as in the numbers counting down and we're almost at zero. But that phrase in Greek, the last day, is not talking about number of days. It's talking about an age. So we're living in the last age or the last epoch if you want to be more specific and so the last days started in acts 2 so we've currently been in the last days for 2,000 years right so so we man brother we're in the last days yes 100 we're in the last days we've been there for 2,000 years we should get used to it you know so but we're in the last age so another way you could say that though if you do want to talk about numbers is not we're in the last days, we're actually in the first days. Hope is our identity, and hope is our destiny. Does everybody agree? 1 Corinthians 13, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Hope, faith, and love remain after everything is gone. So hope is the thing that will remain after everything has gone away, Right? So hope is our destiny. We have nothing but hope. In fact, our state motto, I believe prophetically without them even knowing it, is while I breathe, I hope. Go look at your license plate after you leave church. If it's any, I guess in the past five, six years, it'll say, while I breathe, I hope. So you're driving around with a prophetic declaration on the back of your car. You didn't even know that if I'm breathing, we got hope. It's time to get our hopes up. This is getting good. God is not retreating. He's invading. Let me say this one more time because I put a bunch of stuff around this. God is not retreating. He is invading. That, that would have been an awesome place for an amen right there. God is not retreating or running away from evil. He's invading. Whew. What you're seeing is evil being uprooted and fleeing because the king is moving in. 
God's sons and daughters are being manifested, and I can feel the labor of creation as in childbirth, ready to give birth to freedom. Let me read this, Isaiah 61. Let me just give you kind of an idea of where Isaiah, way before even Jesus saw this thing was going. The mighty spirit of the Lord is wrapped around me because Yahweh has anointed me. Okay, Jesus quotes that later in, I believe, Luke um, 4. Um, But this is talking about Jesus. He's anointed me as a messenger to preach the good news to the poor. He sent me to heal the wounds of the brokenhearted, to tell the captives you're free, to tell the prisoners be free from your darkness. I am sent to announce a new season of Yahweh's grace. New season could also be new age of Yahweh's grace. Could also be a new year. All right. And a time of God's recompense on his enemies to comfort those in sorrow, to strengthen those crushed by despair who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful bouquet in the place of ashes, the oil of bliss instead of tears, the mantle of joyous praise instead of the spirit of heaviness. That could also be translated the spirit of failure. Just, just, while, just let this... I have come to give them, you, a mantle of joyous praise instead of the spirit of failure. Because of this, they, us, will be known as mighty oaks of righteousness planted by Yahweh as a living display of his glory. Now listen to this right here. Okay, thinking about the past couple of weeks, past couple of months. Listen to this right here. They will restore ruins from long ago and rebuild what was long devastated. They will renew ruined cities and desolations of past generations. Let me just just hang with me right here. They will renew ruined cities. Listen to this phrase. And the desolation of of past generations. Foreigners will be appointed to shepherd your many flocks, and strangers will cultivate your fields and tend your vines. But you will be known as priest of Yahweh and called servants of our God. You will feast on the wealth of nations and revel in their riches. Listen to this right here, man. Because you received a double dose of shame and dishonor, you will inherit a double portion of endless praise and everlasting bliss. For I, Yahweh, love fairness and justice. I, Yahweh, love fairness and justice. I'm going to bring this back around, okay? Because what have we been in the past couple of weeks? A movement to establish what? Justice. And, and people have the audacity to say that's the devil. It's not the devil. It's the groaning of creation saying, I see renewal on the horizon. Man, oh man. Think about generations. Think about generations. I was thinking about um, Martin Luther King Jr. ironically this morning as I was coming in. And um, 
I, I was listening to an interview this week that they were talking about just just things going on in the world. And um, one of the one of the comments was is that Martin Luther King Jr. literally gave his life for justice, gave his life for justice. But it seems years later that um, we've done nothing with that. Or if we have, we've done very little. But as I was thinking about it, what I began to see and what this guy was saying, it's one of my favorite theologians, but he mentioned what he believes and what I believe, what's happening right now in the earth is a movement coming out of the earth that deals with racism, but it really deals with a lot of things. And the movement is called justice. And what happens when Yahweh begins to invade? The judge in Yahweh begins to invade. What is the judge in Yahweh? The judge in Yahweh is to establish justice. When he begins to establish justice, what is he establishing justice for? freedom for his own people to live in a kingdom where peace reigns everlasting. So he has come to announce that he loves fairness and justice. He hates stealing and sin. He will, listen to this, he will rightly repay them because of his faithfulness. And enter into an everlasting covenant with them. Their seed will be famous among the nations. And their descendants the center of attention of the people. All who see them will recognize that they are the seed of Yahweh. And that Yahweh has blessed with his favor. Think about this. Think about this. If If we could stop thinking about evil for three seconds, and see what Yahweh is actually doing in the earth, none of it is evil. Ephesians 5 says everything that is brought to the light will be transformed into truth. Is it possible that what Yahweh is doing is digging deep in the soil of creation and bringing all the things hidden up to the surface so that he can turn everything that is seen and exposed to the light into truth? See, we have to be really, when he begins to do that, there is a season where all you can see is what has been brought to the surface. And if we're not careful, we'll see all the stuff on the surface and say, man, evil is really kicking us in. That's not what's happening. What's happening is we've been, we're being exposed to everything that has been shoved down for generation after generation after generation so Yahweh can say justice. To be clear, this is the year of perfect vision. Let him then change your vision. Evil is satisfied when it feels unthreatened. Evil does, evil isn't moved when it feels unthreatened. Evil is chaotic when it feels extinction closing in. So let it get chaotic. These aren't the days to shrink back and brace ourselves. These are the days to finish the job. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The king is here. The king is here. What happens 
right before. Think about this. What happens right before Jesus comes back and establishes kingdom forever? What does the world look like? Let me say it like this. What did the world look like when Jesus came the first time? He, Jesus came on the back half of 400 years of nothing. Silence. The, the, the darkest era in all of Israel's history. And then all of a sudden, a voice. I'm going to just cry a lot today. A vo- the darkest moment in history, and then all of a sudden a voice starts screaming out, prepare the way. The king is here. What? Wouldn't you think that he would send John the Baptist right at the end of Malachi when things have gotten pretty bad, but Yahweh at least is still speaking through some people, and then John the Baptist show up and say, all right, let's finish this. Y'all get ready. The king is here. No, no, no. Four hundred years of not one word and if he did speak it it's not recorded not one word and then all of a sudden a voice crying in the wilderness where did all this start in the book of exodus with a group of people leaving slavery in a wilderness where they're about to inherit a promised land 400 years of silence 400 years of silence And in the wilderness, there's a voice crying out, get ready. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They all had to look at John the Baptist like he was crazy. The kingdom of heaven, God has abandoned us. What are you talking about? Our great, great granddads didn't hear from the Lord. Why would you think we're going to hear from the Lord? On top of that, not just hear from the Lord, His kingdom being here. If this is what His kingdom looks like, it's really not that great. That's what they had to, been, had to be thinking. When John the Baptist said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. Where? Right? And then Jesus comes... And did what none of them expected. Died. They weren't looking for a king who was going to be put to death by the Romans that they were thinking the Messiah was going to come set them free from. That's not what they were thinking. And then when they see the Messiah hanging on a cross with his guts exposed, bleeding to death, dying at the hands of the Romans, all hope had been lost. Until three days later... When that very Messiah woke up, defeated death, walked out of a tomb and said, now I'm about to send you what you were designed for. So let me, So the reason I'm saying this, on the back half of the darkest night, Jesus comes to shift everything. Now, why is that important? Because Jesus came to deal with the depth of darkness within humanity. So the first thing he had to do was allow the depth of darkness to rise to the surface in what seemed like the darkest moment in Israelites' history so that when Jesus came, he could declare justice over it. Y'all with me? Awesome. All right. So Esther, whew, I'm fired up today. Esther gives us a glimpse, what we're about to read, of what 
the bride or, or queen, excuse me, Esther gives us a glimpse of what the bride or queen of the king can operate in as it relates to proximity and authority. You have two warriors in the Old Testament. You have David, who was an awesome sword slinger. And then you have Esther, who never touched a sword. One of those saved the entire nation of Israel. One of those won a lot of battles. One of those saved the whole nation by speaking. And it was not David. I, I believe Esther, I believe, this is just my personal opinion, I believe Esther is the most successful and important warrior in the Old Testament. The story of Esther is the most important story for all of us to understand, I believe, as it relates to the Old Testament. Because Esther gives us a, a clue, a view into what our lives with the king can and should operate in. So let me give you like a, a real quick synopsis of where we are, and then we're going to go to um, Esther 4, okay? So the book of Esther takes place in Persia. This is post-Babylonian exile of Judah. The book is a close relative to Song of Songs. So Esther and Song of Songs are one of the most, two of the most debated books as to whether or not they should be in Scripture. Obviously, they ended up in Scripture. Praise the Lord for that. Um, we would have really missed out on a lot. But these are the two most um, debated of whether or not they should. Okay? Just giving you a lot of backstory. This really doesn't matter or mean anything, but just letting you know. Um, most scholars, most scholars um, also believe that this book is more of a parable of sorts set within a historical framework. Either way, its divine purpose stands as a beautiful motif, the most excellent way to change the fate of an entire people group or nation. So just like Song of Songs, how you see the book of Song of Songs, but the meaning goes way deep within, same with the book of Esther. You see the book of Esther, but the meaning of the story is not the story on the surface level. It's all the internal stuff going on within the belly of the story. You with me? All right. So here's what happens leading up to uh, Esther 4. So King Asiris who is historically probably King um, Eres I. Not that that matters, but if you want to go back and study this, you can. So this king in Persia has a 180-day celebration for officials and leaders to show off the splendor of his kingdom. This is leading up to chapter 4. After, he had, after that, he had a seven-day celebration for all the people, so not just officials and leaders. This is for everybody in his kingdom with drinking without restraint, and where the officials of his palace were ordered to do as they desired. Okay? Then, Queen Vashti, the queen who was queen before Esther, also had a banquet for the women of the kingdom. On the seventh day of this banquet, the king orders seven eunuchs to bring the queen so that he could show off her beauty to everyone. This is really key. The seventh day, 
the seventh day, the king orders seven eunuchs to bring the queen so that he could show off her beauty to everyone. But she refuses to come. Y'all tracking with me? Y'all seeing some stuff? Okay. Call the queen. I want to show off her beauty to everyone. They go to the queen and she says, you know what? I don't want to go. Because of this, the king searches for a virgin, which represents purity, for a pure queen to take Vashti's place because she refused to come into the presence of the king. There was a Benjamite named Mordecai who was probably a court official who raised Hadassah, this is her Hebrew name, or Esther, which is her Babylonian name. Okay, So her Hebrew Jewish name was Hadassah. Her Babylonian exile name was Esther. It's really interesting that they used the name Esther all throughout the book rather than her Hebrew name. Um, that's a really cool study too, but anyway, not for today. Because of the favor of her life, the king takes delight in Esther more than any other, and Esther becomes queen. Mordecai alerts the king of a plot to assassinate him, and Mordecai is rewarded and recorded in history as a hero. The king promoted Haman, a descendant from King Agag the Amalekite, above all officials in his kingdom, because Mordecai, who is a descendant of Saul, the first king of Israel, refuses to bow down to Haman, who is a descendant of Agag. If you go to 1 Samuel 15, you can read about that rivalry. Haman hates Mordecai and plots a plan to trick the king into decreeing all Jews be put to death. Are y'all with me? I know this is a lot. This really, I'm just trying to give you a backstory before we go to Esther 4, instead of reading the whole thing. So the edict goes out the day before Passover. And this is where we're going to pick up the story in Esther 4, okay? So there is a decree that has gone out. All Jews will be put to death. So it has been decreed all Jews will die. But Esther, who has concealed the fact that she is a Jew, is now queen. So let me pick it up here. Esther 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned... All that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went through the city wailing with a loud, bitter cry when he heard about the decree to kill all Jews. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. In every province, wherever the king's command and his decree came, there was great, just listen to some of this language, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and and weeping, and lamenting, and most of them laying sackcloth and ashes. Really dark time. When Esther's maids and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what had happened, what was happening and why. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate 
And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and charge her to go to the king and make supplication to him and entreat him for her people. Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and gave him a message for Mordecai saying, okay, this is really important. This is where it gets good. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. All alike are to be put to death. Any man or woman that goes to the king inside the inner court without being called is put to death. Okay? Holy of holies. Anyone who entered the holy of holies without being purified to enter into the holy of holies where the king sat enthroned, taught this last week, the Ark of the Covenant was where Yahweh was enthroned among the Israelites, okay? So in order to go where the king was enthroned, let's say, into his inner courts, if you went without being called, what happened? You died, okay? So here's some, here's some of this in this story. All who go without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. Only if the king holds out his golden scepter to someone, may that person live. I myself have not been called to come into the king for 30 days. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, listen to this right here. It's going to sound very familiar coming up. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think that in, excuse me, do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. He says, don't, you, don't think because you're queen you're going to escape this. You're going to die too. And what he's saying when he says, um, if you keep silent, um, deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. Here's what he's saying. If you keep silent, Yahweh will use somebody else to deliver his people. But you're going to be put to death. So if you keep silent, that's okay. He'll raise up somebody else. But maybe... Maybe you became queen for this moment. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, I'm almost done, and hold a fast on my behalf, and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day, I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. 
Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. These were arguably, now this is before the 400 years before Jesus, all that stuff. So up till this point in history, this was arguably one of Israel's greatest deficits in all of history. That a decree was made to destroy every Jew in this kingdom. But something had been happening behind the scenes in secret where Yahweh was actually about to not only save them, but destroy their enemies in the process. I'm going to just read some stuff that I wrote, and I normally only do this in the beginning, um, but I just felt it. So y'all just hang with me for a moment, okay? I'm about to tie some loose ends. I'm going to ask you a question. You don't have to answer this, just think about it. Is the night darkest just before the dawn? Think. Okay? Don't Google. I guess if you're at home watching this, you're probably already Googling. That's okay. Is the night darkest just before the dawn? Thomas Fuller, an English theologian and historian, famously said this in 1650. He was using this as a way of saying, keep hoping it's about to get better. And so he said this in 1650, that night is always darkest right before the dawn, okay? I actually grew up believing this and and really being taught this. And while it is a nice way of getting hopes up, a little research yields that this is actually highly unfactual. The true darkest part of the night is actually midnight a few hours after the sun has set. Now remember, before I go on, just remember this. All of creation is filled with signposts pointing to the Creator God Himself. Okay? So as I'm reading this, just just remember that. All current Western theology is based around the idea that the darkest night happens moments before dawn. That is, the world getting to its darkest moments means we're actually about to escape. So, in other words, subconsciously we celebrate the world getting darker because we think that's our ticket. Right? That's all of Western theology right now. But let's take the line of thinking for a moment that the darkest night is actually at midnight. The darkness here is not judged by the presence or absence of the moon. Rather, it's judged by the presence or absence of the sun. At around midnight, the sun is furthest away from where we are. Therefore, the night is darkest. With me? But what happens after midnight is actually a gradual brightening as the sun draws closer until the rays of that glorious ball of fire come flushing through every inch of visible creation. Here, night is actually 
brightest just before dawn. Y'all with me? Y'all thinking? I love philosophy stuff. All right? So, you know. so night is either the sad ending to an eventful day or the restful prelude to a new sonnet of endless possibilities. Just, just, just mess with me for a moment, all right? Either night is the ending of what was or the beginning of what is to come. What if, I mean, what if we saw night, just, what if we saw night, instead of night being the death of the day, what if the night was the rest that fueled the day? Okay? I'm about, I'm about to tie all this together. This is my point. Hopelessness dreads the night because it views the night as the end of the day. Hope anticipates joyfully the night because it's the start of a new day. And for good measure, let me just ask you this, what happens on your phone and on your calendar when the clock strikes midnight? What happens? It's a new day. Think. All right? You're, the calendar... The calendar, I'm about to bring it back to Esther, but I just want to stop right here. The calendar doesn't switch at 6 a.m. when the sun comes up, and then, boom, new day. The calendar switches at midnight, right about when people are falling asleep. And then the calendar ends at the climax of the day, not at the death of of the day. You with me? So at my house, I wake up at 5 a.m. every morning, okay, to spend time with the Lord. And what I've noticed recently is that birds at my house start chirping at 5.20 a.m. every single morning. And this drives me crazy because typically Veda will hear them and she wakes up at 5.20, you know. But you know, but it's just, it drives me crazy because I'm like, could we not just get like two hours and she can sleep, she'll be rested, Jordan will be rested, and I can have two hours with the Lord and we'll all be ready to go, you know? But they, I noticed this this week, but something hit me as I was studying through all this is that at 5.20 in the morning, I don't know why that's very specific, but that's just when I notice it every morning. I look at the clock and it's 5.20 when I start hearing them. At 5.20 a.m., it's still dark. I, Thursday morning, I was up with the Lord, and I hear these start chirping. I look at my clock. It's 5.20 a.m., and then I look out the window, and it's pitch black outside. What they're doing is announcing the dawn. Somehow, because birds don't have iPhones, right? Think. Think about creation. Think, we, we've got to start seeing this right, all right? Birds aren't just floating around doing whatever. The, the Lord knit them together just like he knit us together, right? So somehow 
though it is still completely dark outside, something goes off within a bird that says, dawn is on its way. Let's start singing. Right? So, so they're, they're, not, they're not sleeping in. They're saying, we've got a song to sing to usher in the day. So what if we start looking around and instead of having an old view, we start having a new view that views the world and interprets the world correctly. Esther goes from seeing despair to seeing opportunity. She literally goes from hopelessness to hope for freedom. The phrase, maybe you were here, or you were made in dignity or royal dignity for such a time as this is a phrase that I've heard my whole life. Any of y'all? Like, that's a phrase that we throw around a lot. Maybe you're made for such a time as this. Such a time as this. And it's 100% right. And typically what we'll say is, is when things don't make sense, maybe you're there for a reason. 1,000% correct. Okay? For such a time as this. I started thinking about it this morning, though, on the way here. And as I was thinking through this story, and as I was thinking through Mordecai and Esther, we have an idea, okay? Now remember, Esther being queen in this culture didn't really mean a lot. She couldn't go up into the king and hang out and do all that stuff. I mean, she was basically like everybody else. She was just queen. She would only be able to go see the king if she was summoned. And so I'm thinking about this story. David was of much more national fame and prominence. He did a lot of, he slayed Goliath. So David would walk around and the Israelites would sing even before he was king. Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his ten thousands. So he's walking, he's, David is a famous guy. Everybody wants David to be king. Ironically, David didn't kill 10,000 when they said that. So that was very, like, you know, hyped up. We typically tend to do that, right? You know, like, David killed 10,000. Like, no, he killed Goliath. Um, you know, but I guess it seemed like 10,000 because Goliath was uh, apparently the worst. So David is this great, awesome, famous warrior and does a lot of good. Esther is hidden in the king's palace, a, a really, other than being queen, is not some big famous person that everybody's going around singing to, yet has aligned herself in proximity to have the opportunity to speak a word to the king and a whole nation be shifted. Typically, our... Um, and I want to say this real carefully. In the era of um, not wanting to step on toes, the message is typically pushing people to be encouraged because they will be big and famous and change the world one day. Just hold, hold me for a second. So, so the message is, is you have a destiny, which you do. You have a purpose, you have dreams, chase after them. God's going to give you riches. He's going to put you on a pedestal where you're going to influence millions. That's typically the message, right? 
right? If you're having a conversation with somebody and you want to encourage them, tell them they're going to have millions of followers one day and they will leave encouraged. Trust me, right? Brother, it does not look good right now, but one of these days you're going to reach millions. Okay? I don't think that's a bad thing. Here's the thing that we have missed, okay? I've started wondering why, why I have more joy in this room with this handful of people than I ever did on a stage in front of tens of thousands of people because I've done both. One of those, I was miserable. Had, and again, I just want to be very clear. It had nothing to do with the place I was at. They're doing great things for the kingdom. That's not what I'm talking about. It had everything to do with me. Okay, but then Yahweh sends me in a transformation that I begin to say, if it costs me everything, I don't care as long as I get you. And I find myself in a room where I seemingly, in the eyes of the world, have a fraction of the influence I ever used to have and still have more joy than I ever used to have. And here's what I've started seeing. People, and I've told you all this before, people have prophesied over my life that I was going to change thousands and I was going to reach millions and I was going to have a big ministry and I was going to be on TV and all that stuff. People have prophesied that to me over and over and over and over. I've never gotten one prophecy that I was going to be a good dad. Never. I've never gotten one prophecy that I was going to be closer to the king than anybody in my family ever has been. And I'm driving on the way here this morning and I'm thinking... All the prophecies that have been spoken over me versus the reality of what I'm walking in, those pale in comparison to this. And I have way less influence, and I have way less followers. I don't even have Instagram, so I guess I have no followers. So I have way less followers, right? Way less followers. However, I'm joy-filled, and my family is together, and I'm a good dad. I feel like there's a lot of places I could grow, but I'm, I'm learning to be a good dad. And my daughter is walking around the house singing Waymaker. I wish she was out here to sing it. I know she's watching this in the kids' room, but she says, uh, uh, Miracle work, promise meeker. Light in, the, Light in the darkness, my God, that is who. Like, you know, like somebody getting mad, you know. And um, it's so funny. But, but she was singing that. She was singing that in the pool a few days ago. It was just me and her. We were swimming in our neighborhood pool Friday, I guess it was, whatever day it was. Um, we were swimming in our neighborhood pool, and she was just singing that. Just singing, miracle, promise, and singing that stuff. And I'm like, that, I don't know if this would be going on in my family had I not made the decision to lay down the words over my life and inherit the relationship with Jesus that has become everything for me. So we, we'll, we'll pray for the sick all day long. You know, right? Let me, let me, just, let me just be, all right, this, let me just speak for me. I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've prayed for the sick prayed over them, told them Jesus loved them, and then walk away. They didn't hear the gospel. They didn't hear about Jesus. I prayed over their sickness. Let me tell you something. If we're going to transform Columbia, the gospel has to be what we're going after, and I promise you if we go after the gospel, we'll inherit all the signs and wonders with it. But this, but this is what's happening in the culture is that you have an Esther who is in proximity with the king doing seemingly nothing, 
And then you have a David who's out there slinging his sword that when it comes time for him to say, you know what, Yahweh, I would love to build a house for you to rest in. Yahweh says, no, 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 no. You have way too much blood on your hands. You can't do it. But you'll have a son whose name is Peace, and he'll build my house. So Esther is in, to be clear, just, just so you know, captivity. This is after Babylon. Why is Esther and Mordecai in Persia? Because they were carried off in exile when Yahweh pulled them out of the promised land. So it's not like the Israelites have some big high place in Persia. And somehow Esther becomes queen over all of Persia as a Jew. And so do you know what Esther's doing leading up to this point? She's getting, the Bible says, if you go back and read it, it's really funny. She's getting beauty treatments and oil treatments, and she's smelling good, and she's looking good, and they're getting her ready to go into the king. That's what she's doing. She's not swinging a sword. She's not casting stuff out, and I think we should do that. But, but you know what? She's preparing to enter into the presence of the king. That, by the way, no one could do without being called or else was put to death. So she was being prepared to defy all laws to go into the king's presence without a summons. You now can approach the throne of grace boldly and make your petitions known. That's what the New Testament says. Couldn't do that before. But now, through Jesus, you can approach the throne of grace boldly. Esther is about to approach the throne boldly, unannounced. She goes from seeing despair to seeing opportunity. Yahweh is raising up fathers and mothers, Mordecai's and Esther's, in America and across the globe, beginning here in Colombia, that are going to usher in the new day rather than hang on to the old. Let me say this one more time. just feels good. And then I'm going to read it a little bit in Revelation. So hang, in, hang with me. We'll get back to Esther, but I'm going to tie all this around. Okay? Y'all good? Awesome. Awesome. All right? He's raising up fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, Mordecai's and Esther's, I guess, if you will, in America and across the globe, beginning here, that are going to usher in the new day. That's what the whole, um, at the end of the book of Matthew, when he gives them the Great Commission, that's what it's all about. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. Not, he doesn't even say of the people in the nations. He literally says, if you read it in the Greek, he says, go and disciple all nations. Go and take cities and nations and make those nations bear the image of the one they were designed to bear. So he's not calling them to go sit in an upper room until he comes back and steals them. He's saying, go sit in the upper room, I'm going to send you power, and then I want you to go and take every single nation for the kingdom. Very different, right? One of those is ushering in a new kingdom. The other is bracing because they're getting kicked in by the old kingdom. Listen, listen to this. Revelation 21. Okay, this is the end of everything. Revelation 21. People avoid Revelation. 
I think we should just sit in it for a little while. Revelation 21, Revelation 21, Revelation 21. You don't have to turn there. If you're on the app, you can guess you can just click there. Praise the Lord. All right, Revelation 21. John says, in a vision, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. How many of you remember all this? I've taught this a billion times, it feels like, over the past little bit. Does anybody remember the teaching on the word new there? Wow, awesome. All right, no one. Okay, so the word new there is not naos, which is the Greek word for something newly created. The Greek word, if, I, if, if Veda was just born, I would say she is a neos baby. She was just created, just born. Okay? Then there's the Greek word kainos, which is fresh. Okay? Which is new in substance. So the example I use is if I take a 1970s pickup truck, it's old, Right? But if I put a new engine in it, a new paint job, new chairs, new all that stuff, I could say that truck is like new. It's not new. New chairs, yeah. Make it look like it did, you know. It's not new, but it's new. It's restored. That's the word John is using here in Revelation, okay? So let me say it like this. Then I saw in a vision a restored heaven and earth, the first heaven and earth order, when he talks about first, the first order of heaven and earth, had passed away, the sea no longer existed. I saw the holy city of the new Jerusalem descending out of the heavenly realm from the presence of God like a pleasing bride that had been prepared for her husband, adorned for her wedding. Now that does not sound like you want to get away from it, right? Hmm. And I heard a thunderous voice from the throne saying, look, now this is Jesus and the new heaven and new earth all coming down. You ready? Look, God's tabernacle is with human beings. Woo, hold up. Are human beings now with God, or is God's tabernacle now where human beings are? From now on, from now on, He will tabernacle with them as their God, and God Himself will have His home with them. God with them will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and eliminate death entirely. No one will mourn or weep any longer. The pain of wounds will no longer exist, for the old order has ceased. And God enthroned, spoke and said, Consider this, I am making everything to be new and fresh, right down at once, all that I have told you, because each word is trustworthy and dependable. Let me, let me read this to you. I didn't have this in my notes, but let me just read this first. Don't turn there. In Acts 3. Let me read this. Acts 3. This is one of the ones we have skipped over in the past. Peter's preaching, and he says, You must repent, Acts 3, starting in verse 19. You must repent, turn back to God, so that your sins will be removed, and so that times of refreshing, okay, what does the word refreshing means? It means to make fresh again, to refresh, will stream from the Lord's presence, and he will send you, listen to this right here. I can't make it any more clear than this. I don't know how we missed it. And he will send you Jesus, the Messiah, the chosen one for you. He will send you Jesus. This, this is Jesus coming again. He will send you Jesus, the Messiah, the chosen one for you. For he must remain in heaven 
until the restoration of all things has taken place, fulfilling everything that God said long ago through his holy prophets. Just for fun, one more time. Okay? He, let me say it like this. He's not coming back until what? The world gets awful? No, he's not coming back until the restoration of all things has taken place. What does it mean to restore? I just described it when I talked about the car. It means to take it back to its original quality. You're restoring it. So who's going to restore? When he's saying this, who is he saying? For he must remain in heaven until the restoration of all things. Who's supposed to be doing that? Hello, that's why we got saved and then he left us here. Go and disciple all nations. Pray like this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, you are supposed to be agents of restoration until the entire created order in the cosmos is restored back to its original in the beginning state. And then he will come and walk in the cool of the day again as he returns and establishes his kingdom. So if you want an end time eschatology, there it is right there. Not rapture. People get so sick of me talking about the rapture. That has enslaved America. Do you know why injustice is still a thing in America? Let me me really say some stuff people aren't going to like. Do you know why injustice is still a thing in America? Because the rapture. I I promise you 100%. Well, Josh, how is that possible? Because the church has sat back and done this, waiting for Jesus to come snatch us away so we don't have to do anything. And because of that, we haven't done anything, and the church has just gone on in chaos. I told Ellington this this week. I I don't think the world has turned away from God. I think the world has turned away from the church. I do not think the world has turned away from God. Why? Because what is creation crying out for? Not injustice and murder and all the things of evil. Creation currently is crying out for the thing the church is supposed to have the answer to. So they came into the church looking for justice, and instead they saw a bunch of people divided and talking behind their backs and in cliques, and they said, if that's what this looks like, we're going to go find it somewhere else. And they found it a lot more accurately in the world than they did in the church. God's grace is so great, I believe he's allowing creation to bear the image that the church refuses to bear. I believe that's what's happening right now. I believe he's allowing creation. He loves his kids so much that he's looking into the church and saying, that's not what I look like. So instead, I'm going to take a bunch of messed up worldly people and let them look like me. They don't even know it. So people, people are, people are uh, talking about justice and protesting for justice, and they're not resting until justice. And what everybody's seeing is a bunch of people who have no idea they're actually starting to look like the Messiah. And they don't even know it. And the church is teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching and bearing no image. Man, I feel this. So so what we're seeing across the globe, I believe, is the knowledge of the glory of the Lord 
covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. Remember Romans 8, 19 through 21. I've been talking about it this whole time. It's the sons and daughters being manifest that initiates creation being freed from decay that initiates Jesus returning to reign. Romans 8, 19. All of creation stands on tiptoe yearning for the manifestation of the sons and daughters of God so that with us it can experience freedom from decay that is coming to God's children for that is the hope of salvation. Right? So all of creation is just waiting. And I believe what it's seeing in this place, and not just this place, there's pockets all over the country popping up right now of people that are refusing to settle for religion and refusing to settle for knowledge and refusing to settle for whatever else that we've settled for. And they're saying, I will not settle until I lock eyes with the burning eyes of fire. All across the world. And what's happening is sons and daughters are starting to be manifest, which is causing creation to start spinning. And I can hear, we, we, were, uh, we did small group out at my uh, neighborhood, um, I guess it's been like a month ago now, and we started praying, and I could hear creation, I could hear it saying, we're getting free. Some of y'all need to start listening to the wind. We've, we've made stuff weird in the church that was actually intended to send us into dimensions. Man, people didn't say amen to that, that's okay. You know what I'm saying? So, so you can sit around and get, like me, and get annoyed at the birds, or you can say, I wonder what song they're singing that I'm not singing. What are they singing that I'm not seeing? What is my daughter singing that I'm not seeing? We were playing in the pool, I guess, uh, every story goes around the pool now, and because um, it's so hot outside, but uh, we were playing in the pool uh, a couple of weekends ago, and it, it was, it was kind of ironic, because just what we had talked about, that, it was on a Sunday afternoon, what we had talked about and just everything going on in the world. And she's playing in the pool, and me and Jordan are having a conversation with some other people. And I look over, and she's playing with a bunch of kids I had never seen before. And uh, so I was trying to figure out if they even lived in our neighborhood, and I kind of got mad at first. But then I was like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to focus. Um, <laughs> see, I'm not perfect either. Okay. But she's playing with all these kids, and I kid you not, in this group of kids, there's about four different nationalities and races. She has no clue. She's playing. And I looked at that, and I just felt the Holy Spirit say, that's the generation coming up, justice. You know, like, have we preached a message to the kids about justice? No. Let me tell you this. Veda, a few days ago, um, I I don't know what it was over. I believe she couldn't play with something because it was bedtime or something. And she said the phrase, that's not fair. We have never taught her what it means to be fair. So something is built into the DNA of every child that can see justice. How, a three and a half year old that has never been taught what's fair and unfair looks at something that she believes is not justifiable and says, that's not fair. She wanted to play with a toy in the pool yesterday that somebody wouldn't give her. She said, that's not fair. What, what is justice? What is fairness? It's receiving what you deserve. And Romans 8 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That I have been adopted and you've been adopted into son and daughtership in the king. 
That word adopted is not you've been adopted like you changed your name. It's been you, you are grafted in and considered the same as the son himself. That's what that word means, adopted. So that's what the king has done for us. Therefore, justice for us is receiving the full inheritance that being considered adopted into the family aligns us to receive. That's justice. So for me to look at the world and accept anything of the kingdom of darkness, that would be for me to say that's fair or that's not fair. For me to sit back and say I refuse to settle until I get everything of the kingdom, that would also be for me to say that's fair and that's not fair. All of that depends on how you see yourself and how you see yourself determines how you see God's justice and whether or not it's been applied to your life. That's why Song of Songs is massive for any believer. Because if you don't think he looks at you and sees you as good, you'll never know what God's justice means. I know, there's a lot of people who believe God's judgment is aimed at them. Why the, so here's the question you heard. Why is God allowing this to happen to me? What they're essentially saying is God is angry and he's aiming judgment at me. And if we could ever understand our identity, the question instead would be, I'm going to go to the king. What can I whisper to change nations today? You begin praying offensive instead of defensive. Who mentioned that to me this morning? Yeah, Julia. Awesome. You begin playing, praying offensive instead of defensive. So instead of saying, Lord, I pray that you'll heal coronavirus, instead you'll start praying for an entire country that's healthy. Okay. Bring it back, Esther. Sons and daughters are currently being manifest, so what you're seeing is creation and the birthing pains to give birth to freedom. Ugliness revealed in terms of the way of the current world is the necessary first step to new creation. I mentioned it earlier, Ephesians 5. Everything brought to the light will be turned to truth. So the first step is everything to be brought to the light. So you've got to see all the ugliness of all the stuff we've hid for years before Yahweh can transform it into truth. So when you start seeing the ugliness of the world around you, that is not the time to shrink back and be destroyed, as Hebrew says. It's the time to have faith and finish the job. When truth, light, floods the earth, Yahweh in love will expose all hidden darkness so that it can turn it into truth. Most sin isn't a conscious decision to be evil. Most sin is misdirected longings to fulfill your image-bearing purpose. Let me give you an example. You ready? Nobody, pornography is a, is a pandemic today. It's an issue that people struggle with. So here, this is why I'm going to point this out. The longing in someone that's struggling with that is not, I'm going to sin against God. The longing is for love and affection that we were actually designed for. You ready? So as believers, our job is not behavior modification, which is all we've done. What is behavior modification? That's when you tell somebody, do this because it's right and don't do this because it's wrong. Instead, our job as believers should be to unveil 
what's actually already there, which is you have a capacity for love and adoration and acceptance. If you could direct that to Jesus, which it was designed to be directed toward, it would fulfill every desire that you have. Man. I know, I mean, like... Every, everyone was designed to bear the image of God. God put eternity in the heart of every man. Right? He knit you, who is you? All of mankind. He knit you together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Every day of your life was written in his book before one of them came to be. That's what the book of Psalms says. So every man, woman, child was knit together in their mother's womb to bear the image of God. All of them. That's why in the world, doing bad is not natural. Do you ever think about this? For me to go out and, um, I'll use an example. Our sign was destroyed this morning. I don't know who did it. I don't know why. Doesn't seem fun, but when I pulled up, our sign was crumbled up outside. So, anyway, God bless whoever did that. Um, there's people I, I don't know, but our signs crumpled up outside. All right, right. For somebody to do that, you have to walk up and make the decision to defy your consciousness that says this is wrong in order to do it. Do you understand this? You have to move beyond what is natural to you in order to do something evil. Why? Because naturally, all men and women were created good for good works. All of them. So when the world starts doing things that goes against goodness, it's simply because people have made the decision to move beyond their conscience and do something that is not natural to them. Now, here's the good news. In order to see that, they first had to move past a conscious that is good, which means within them there is a good conscious. So instead of telling people, don't do this and do this and don't do this and do this, instead I believe we need to move beyond the decisions people have made and hit the good conscious they had to pass through first and show them that they're actually good. Y'all, keep it in, keep it in, keep it in. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up, I'm going to wrap it up. So when the storm finds Jesus, he doesn't tell it to leave. He tells it to be still. Why? Because he gives the root of the storm its proper identity and direction, peace. Think think about this. When the storm comes to Jesus, he doesn't say leave. He says be still. So all the atmospheric pressure, the rain droplets, The water below, the wind, was all still there. He just brought it into its correct order, which was peace. So he didn't tell it to leave. He brought it back into its design. So when things come and find you, our job is to not tell stuff to leave. Our job is to bring things back into order that they were designed to operate in. So we really need to honor the inheritance of this generation. Daniel, uh, where are you? Go ahead and come up, of this revelation. And I'm going to bring it back to uh, Esther, and then we're going to finish the story of Esther tomorrow. But I really wanted to hit the such a, time, such a time as this thing. Okay, so we really need to honor the inheritance of what I'm talking about today. And it's not for me, not for me, but what the Lord is teaching us. The story is being pushed today in America 
that American Christianity is to brace for it, the world's getting more evil. I hear Yahweh say, rest for a new day is dawning. The world has not turned from God. I just said this. They've turned from churches. Eternity's in the heart of every man, Ecclesiastes 3.11. People look to the church to see what God looks like and instead saw religion. Because the church is meant to bear the image of God, they associated religion with God. So it's not that they're denying God. It's that they've most have never seen what he actually looks like. Most people that are atheist or don't believe in God have not denied God. It's simply the fact that they've never seen what he accurately looks like. How many people, just on the day of judgment, how many people are going to stand before the Lord with their jaws dropped saying, I never knew you looked like that. I thought you were mad at me. I thought you were disappointed at me. I thought all you wanted was for us to show up and sing the right songs and do the right things and read my Bible every day. But man, this is different. Nobody ever told me about this. I wonder how many people are going to do that. How many people are going to stand before the Lord one day and say, if I saw this piece of you while I was there, man, how I would have lived different. If I saw you like this rather than how I was told, man, how I would have lived different. Jesus, Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If we begin to look like Jesus, we'll begin giving the cosmos an accurate, accurate picture of God. Say it one more time, I'm gonna wrap up. This is my last note. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Colossians says. So if we begin to look like Jesus, will give the cosmos an accurate picture of what God looks like again. Us being image bearers was us not just bearing the image of God back to God in worship. It was us bearing the image of God into the globe that in certain moments can't see the image of God for themselves. That's evangelism. You want to know what evangelism, the easiest way to win somebody to Christ is to look like Christ. Jesus, Jesus had zero effort in leading someone to God or leading someone to himself or casting out a devil or healing the sick or raising the dead or doing anything he did. He had zero effort in doing any of it. Why? Because he was the perfect human representation of what it looks like to bear the image of God. Jesus, fully man, bore the full image of God in the flesh. Why? To show us that we in the flesh can actually bear the accurate image of God. I heard this talk by a guy named N.T. Wright, one of my favorite theologians, a few weeks ago. And he said, Jesus was the perfect human. Jesus was the perfect human. What is he saying there? He's saying human beings were designed to bear the image of God, and Jesus bore it perfectly. We have an easy, let me say it like this. We have an, um, an easy time viewing Jesus as God. Where we struggle is viewing him as God and man. Okay? Full deity, God, yet man in the flesh. 
so that we could relate to him in every area of our life because he related with us. So let's bring it back to Esther. This is what I want to wrap it up and then we'll finish it next week. Esther, the new queen, the story goes on in chapter five. She walks in to the king's presence, fearing her life. He holds up the scepter and then he says this. Let me just read this. This is in chapter five. What is your request? It shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. What is your request? In other words, whatever you want, you're about to have. Think about, just think for a second. Think for a second. We're almost done, okay? Think. She goes into the king's presence that should have killed her, and she walks in, and she doesn't find a king who's angry, ready to throw a spear. She finds a king that says, hey, Whatever you want, you got it. Maybe you were made queen for such a time as this. I said this last week. What if, what if we can end injustice by whispering to the king? What if we were in such proximity with the king that we begin hearing the whispers? Ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and I'll open it for you. Whatever you want is yours. She didn't ask for riches. Let me say that when he says, ask and you shall receive, I guess you can apply it to money if you want. That, that is the Lord, that is the bare minimum of what he was not talking about riches. He was talking about proximity. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. If we have settled for asking for materialistic things, we have settled for a kingdom that we are not made for yet. That's, you know what I'm, People ask and you shall receive. That's the message that we preach all the time telling people. If you'll just ask God, he'll give you TVs and cars and all that stuff that you want. I mean, that's what we've done. Ask and you shall receive. So my asking lately has been, I want to I be so deep that there is no veil between you and I. Song of songs, it is you I long for with no veil between us. I want to hear the whispers. I want to hear the conversations between Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I want to hear the things that you think about me on a daily basis. I want to walk through the streets and be so full of the love of Jesus that people look at me and say, I don't know what's on that man, but I feel love like I've never felt love before. What, I mean, what if we could evangelize? Let me say it like this. I believe we'd heal more people than we've ever healed if people could look at us and see the love of Jesus on our life. I believe we would. I believe we would. Why? Because people aren't see, aren't being seen as projects. People are being seen as sons and daughters that the king is coming after. We've got to change. We've got to let the gospel be the main priority in our city from now on. When you're going to your work, the Lord asked me this yesterday. He said, how many people have you led to Jesus in in 2020? How many people have you led to me in 2020? And I counted, I think five. I'm just being straight up with you. Outside, I don't don't include this platform. This is easy, okay? I'm talking about day-to-day basis. I counted, I think, five. Ouch. 
just to remind you, we're six months into the year. That's not okay. And I'm your pastor. I'm not, I'm, I'm not perfect. Lord, I, if you ever see me as perfect, you'll be highly disappointed. Okay? But what I believe, I believe the next stages is us, because of our proximity with our words, being able to do much more than we ever could with our swords. So some of you have been struggling in spiritual warfare and you feel like you've been getting your teeth kicked in over and over and over and over and over. And it's because you've been trying to swing a sword back and you've been trying to fight back and you've been trying to decree and declare and all that stuff's great and we should do that stuff. But there comes a moment where you just have to walk into the presence of the king and say, it's done. And say, king, what do you want? I'll give it to you. I'll tell you what I want. I want Haman killed and I want my people free. You got it. What if we started praying prayers? You can close your eyes right now. What if we started praying prayers? Praying prayers. Where Yahweh begins to whisper, what do you want? And we begin to whisper, justice, freedom. We want babies to live. All autoimmune disease cured. We want Jesus as king. I don't want a democracy where I have a say. I want a government where I can fall in love with the one who reigns. I don't want to tell him what I think. I want to receive the inheritance of what he thinks. So let me encourage you. Let me encourage you. Don't think that this phrase has exclusively to do with you making a big impact as it relates to influence. In fact, let me say it like this. We have to redefine what influence actually means. Because if influence to you still means number of followers, we have missed the superior definition of influence. Here's what influence looks like that you in a place with the king have so much authority that your words can release freedom into the atmosphere and things begin to shift. And here's the catch. People may never even know it was you who said it. We can either be popular to him or we can be popular to them. And I believe the majority of our lives will be spent exclusive to one of those. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and at the proper time, he'll exalt you. So do not settle, do not settle for the idea of your dreams that ends in influence. Settle for your ideas of your dreams that end with you in the inner courts where no one else is allowed. Because there, every one of your dreams will be fulfilled. I promise you that. I'm starting to have dreams fulfilled in me that I strived and strived and strived for when I was in the system trying to be the popular guy. But I can also tell you my dreams look drastically different today too. 
So Yahweh, I pray just to wrap this up. I pray, Yahweh, that you would just begin to give us a new definition of who we are. Give us a new definition of our dreams and our visions and our hopes and our futures. God, let us start to see things as the first dawn into a new day, not the death of what was. The resurrection gave us the key to enter into new creation life, not brace because evil is growing darker. New day, new creation, resurrection life is all on the horizon. This is getting good. Let the church bear the image that the world is wandering around looking for in Jesus' name. Let the church bear the image that the people actually want to see. They're not running from God. They're running from this. They're running from the idea of God that actually isn't a true image of who you are in the first place. Wrap your arms around people and let them know who you really are. And do it through us in your name. Amen. Amen.